I want to declare to you that God is real and that he sees you right now, that he sees you where you're at and he's not the author of your pain. He's not the author of your suffering and that God is here to deliver us today. So if you have pain in your body, I declare in Jesus' name that the presence of God is an invasive, intrusive power for healing and deliverance. And so as we begin and continue to worship Him, we say, Lord, let this atmosphere of heaven rain down on every person, not only in the room, but every hearer, every seeker, everyone that has a hunger for Jesus Christ, for life and for authenticity and reality. Let the cascading presence of the kingdom of God come down where you are. Yeah, come on. We release healing in the room. We release healing to young minds and bodies. We break the power of the curse of autism over a generation. We say OCD, ADD, mental conditions of anxiety of every sort. We say the presence of God is enough to deliver and heal. We say let there be a canopy of glory, a canopy of glory that comes over this region. We say in Jesus' name, restoration, healing, Jehovah Rapha is his name. Healing is our inheritance. There's a river flowing in this place. (laughs) An eternal river flowing in the room. It's an inviting river that says, Drink, drink of the life that is made available for you. In it is healing. Restoration for your soul. Stability for your mind. Salvation. Oh God, we love. We love your river. We love you. We love the outpouring of your spirit. Father, we bless your name. Lord, we say we owe everything to you. Great God, Heavenly Father, lover of my soul. So hard to transition because there is an endless river. This is not a program. But we've tapped into a tributary of the river of God. And it's such a beautiful thing. And I I look forward to the days when we'll have meetings that go 24 hours, just night and day, worship on the earth. Because that's the outcome of our prayer, is that his kingdom would come to the earth as it is in heaven. And there's no night in heaven. There's no time when the angels take off. 
before the throne of God, the four beasts, they say day and night, holy, holy, holy. It just around the clock, so to speak. But we're not there yet. We have a, a window of time this morning. And so I want to say thanks for coming today. So glad that you could be in the room. And I know there might be people here today that don't understand. You might be looking online. You're thinking, okay, what's with the dancers? What's with the singing the same song over and over? What is this? <laughs> let me just let me just set a couple things straight. Have you ever heard of a, a flash mob? Flash mob. Have you seen those videos? You got a flash mob of singers. They're, they're in a food court, and all of a sudden, all these people, and while others are eating, enjoying their lunches, all of a sudden, these people start getting up, and they form this chorus, this symphony of sound that, that chorus hits the ears of the, the hearers, and people are kind of mesmerized. But what it does is it creates an opportunity. It's an icebreaker. And all of a sudden, you see people that aren't part of the mob, that aren't the organized group, joining in. They do something in that moment that they would never do by themselves. But the, if they know the song, if the tune is there, if the background, whether they can sing or not, they, they enter into something. And you see the same thing, a, a flash mob of dancers. Well, our worship team here is, is the icebreaker. They're not the show. They're not the program. They're the icebreaker so that if you can't sing, they'll make more noise than you so you can hide behind their proper intonation. <laughs> and what are the dancers for? What are the flaggers for? Well, listen, this is what God demands of us. He, he says, clap. He says, come before me with dancing. He says, come before me with gladness. Rejoice before me. These are the commands of God. He expects us to do things, not just to stand there. We're not here to be observers. We're here to be participants. This is not TV. He expects us to enter. So what we're doing is we're, if you're sheepish, if you're self-conscious, if you think, I I don't want to be seen to be moving too much. I don't want to be the only one with my hands in the air. I don't want to be the first one to dance. You need icebreakers to give you permission to, to help cover some of your insecurity. And so these server, these dancers are serving you. <laughs> They're the icebreakers so that you can step up and engage fully and worship God with the, your whole heart. And I have to think about, am I the only one? And is everybody looking at me? Because if everybody's doing it, nobody's looking at you. Isn't that great? There's one more thing I want to share. The disciples were walking with Jesus along a road. The Bible calls the road to Emmaus. And Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And he's talking to them. They're, they're in mourning because Jesus died. And they don't know he's risen. But he's walking along with them and he's disguised. His, his form is not what they remember so somehow there's a veil over him. They can't see who he is. 
but he's talking along the way and he's reciting, he's sharing knowledge, he's sharing information, but he's doing it the way he's always done for the three years he was with him. He's releasing words of truth, but there's, a, there's something underneath those words. There's a power and a presence that permeates every word, every scripture he's sharing with them. There's something in it. And it's that, that, that commodity is not hitting their mind. It's hitting something else inside of them such that later they said, man, we should have known it was him because our hearts were burning. It wasn't the information. He, it wasn't that he was delivering it with so much passion. Our hearts were burning. There was something being ignited inside of us that it was not emotional, not intellectual. It was a whole other commodity. Why do we sing a song 12 times? Because most of us are tapping into that realm where we're engaging with a, an energy, a beauty that's beyond the words. That's how the four beasts can say the same thing in heaven over and over and over and over and over and never get bored because they're interacting with a living, flowing revelation of who he is. And there's beauty. Each, each time they say it, it's new because it's not the words. It's the substance of his life that never gets old. And worship begins with tapping into that presence, with engaging with that presence, using songs, using words, but sometimes (laughs) just sounds are great because there's this atmosphere of beauty. So Father, I pray that you would make worshipers. Lord, your son Jesus came and he said that the Father seeks such as would worship him in spirit and in truth. God, we want to satisfy that need that you have. You deserve to have that need met. And of all places, it should be met first, primarily in the company of your people. So Lord, this is our aim today, to arrest everything inside of us that is not inclined to worship you, to see everything that does not want to bow come to an end, to see all the focus on our dignity, our self-importance, our lack, our insecurity, to fade to the background such that we're occupied, preoccupied with nothing but you. Help us get there, Lord, we pray. And Everybody said? Amen. Amen. So uh, this morning I was reading in the scripture and suddenly some things came to mind and... Uh, and so I, I don't really have a title uh, for this morning's message, but I, I have a word, and the word is two. Two is in the number. T-W-O, two. And uh, it signifies many things, obviously, but it signifies this, that there is two kingdoms, Two kingdoms, and only two kingdoms. That there's only, uh, you know, in the words of uh, Bob, uh, what was that? that? Bob Dylan, yeah. <laughs> Bob Dylan. It can only serve two masters. It, it might be the devil, or it might be the Lord. But beyond that, there's, there's no more than two. 
And so this significance of two has been rolling around in me, partially because this week we traveled up to uh, Bonneville and Cold Lake. There was a small group of us, and on the way back, uh, Ben and I got into a conversation about child-rearing, and, um, and I remembered a particular story from my youth, which I may have shared before, but it, it's really interesting because to me, I think sometimes we don't understand what it means to raise children uh, to be Christian children. I, I think sometimes we easily fall into the area of behavior modification. Or as uh, Lauren Jesperson said so many years ago, sin management. <laughs> I, I love that. And I just want to declare that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message of a kingdom and an invitation and an opportunity to be translated from one into the other. That, that the nature of what it means to be born again is based in the fact that when you were born into this world, you were born into sin. You were born into chaos. You were born into darkness. You were born with a disposition. And that disposition... Your entire, uh, your, your entire nature, everything about you is disposed to one direction. And what that direction is, you think, well, you know, people can be good. No, no, no. That entire direction is you. You are born devoted to you. Helplessly devoted to you. <laughs> to borrow a phrase from a song. And, and that disposition is the problem. Now out of that disposition, you can, you can do things that appear to be good and do things that appear to be evil, but it doesn't matter. And the point of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this is that whether you do things out of that disposition, out of that commitment to yourself, that have the appearance of being good or have the appearance of being evil, whatever you produce is always out of the same orientation. You can't escape that orientation. There is no other orientation. Because even when you do things for others, you're doing it out of that orientation. In other words, you start to learn that to get along, people need to like you. So you do good things so that people like you. Oh. That's, we're back to square one. We're back to selfishness. We're back to me doing what's necessary to survive in the world. And, and the basic message of the gospel is that's all you got. There's nothing more than that. You are incapable to rise above that. And so something transformative needs to happen inside of your soul. And that's why the gospel uh, is predicated on this foundation that there's none good. None good. No, not one. And that's what the scripture says. Romans. There's none good. No, not one. From the time that you are born, from the time that you are born into this world, you have inherited uh, a direction that you got from Adam, the first man, and the first woman, his wife, Eve, they fell together, and they, they according to the scripture, they, in, they inherited and passed on that disposition of fallenness. 
It's an orientation. Now, some, here's, the, here's the confusing part. You get some people who appear to be better at creating good behavior. And you know what? Those people are quite likable. Right? You know, the people that are easy to get along with. The people that, you know, are, are disposed to please the adult world around. Kids. Kids that are, you know, some kids are just, they, they badly need the affirmation of adults. And so they, they're able to furnish all the strength necessary to please the adult world. And people say, wow, those are good kids. No, they're not. Those are fallen kids who are just a little more savvy than the others. <laughs> they're just aware of how to get along. We call them brown nosers in school, right? The kid in the school who just has to be the teacher's pet, and so they, they wash the chalkboard and they narc on others. <laughs> oh, yeah, I knew them well. I was not among them. <laughs> Uh, the worst thing you, you could ever subject me to was a nap when, in kindergarten. And I, I was told you have to nap. And I thought, nap? What is that? I, I got so much energy coursing through my body, I can't hardly sit still. And you want me to lay on a hard floor on a towel and be motionless for 20 minutes? <laughs> when you leave the room... And sure enough, I ran into those brown noser types. As soon as the teacher got back, Mark was moving. Mark got up and wrote on the board. Mark went and got a drink of water. Mark got into his lunch basket. Mark, Mark was unable to control the need to move. And so as a general outcome in my life, I was the one <laughs> that did not, was not able to please the adult world. So the tag on my life was not good boy. He was bad boy. <sighs> Let me tell you, the good and the bad equally need redemption. Because there is no righteousness in doing something good that's for you. There's no selflessness in doing something for else, for somebody else if the catalyst is you improving your situation. Hello? Is there any righteousness in that? Is there, I mean, it'll help that person, right? You, you give $5 to somebody to, you know, bolster your sagging self-worth, Right? You had a bad week, you yelled at your wife, you, you did something you shouldn't have done or whatever, so you give five bucks to somebody, you feel better about yourself, that helps that person, but if it's, to, if it's for you, it's not for them. Though they still derive some benefit. But in the master equation of life, as God is looking and tabulating actual righteousness, that is not in the right side of the column. Are you with me? So we were, uh, we were talking particularly on the way home here about, about children and how hard it is to raise them and the complexity of that I, I won't get into. But, but we both realized that our parents and particularly our dads had, this, had something that helped us. And it was kind of a severity uh, over, over selfishness, over sin. And uh, I don't know what it was with my dad. You know, he just, 
He just knew maybe, maybe it was in him. It might have been pride. It might have been his need to be superior, to be the boss, to be the king of the house. I don't know what it was, but he did something good because he kept me from exercising self-will to a certain degree. And that's all you can do as a parent. You can't, you can't bring your kids into righteousness. You can't suppress the, the, the manifestation of self-will. And you're doing that until such time as they can do it themselves. But here's what, how it played out in my home. And there's a story. And some of you might be thinking, man, that's really harsh. Okay, you might not understand this. And you might think, man, I could never serve the God that you're serving if this is what it's about. Well, then you don't understand sin. And you don't understand fallenness. And that's a whole other message. But I was about two years old, and my dad was feeding me at my... Uh, my high chair there, and I did what often babies do, you know, I, I just, I was in a mood, or I didn't want something, or whatever, anyway, my dad's trying to feed me, which he should, and I just, I slapped his hand, and uh, yeah, it's on, baby, You see, because my dad didn't have the orientation that, oh, this is just innocence and childishness, he understood something. He understood that there's malevolence below lack of intelligence. And, you know, sometimes we think, oh, he didn't understand. Well, it doesn't matter. Because when you have a fallen nature, the problem is not that you understand your nature, is that you have it. And you may not, as a child, understand your nature, but adults around you should. And so uh, he slapped my hand. And, uh, of course, I didn't like that, so I slapped him back. You know, tit for tat. (laughs) And so he slapped my hand harder. And I can't remember how many times went back and forth, but it went back and forth a number of times, and my dad kept slapping me on my hand increasingly severely. Eventually, I got the message. This was an unwinnable war. (laughs) But as pride and selfishness and the fallen nature is, I wanted to retain some kind of dignity. I wanted to not totally lose. I had to demonstrate that, you know, I might be sitting down on the outside, but standing up on the inside. Well, my dad seemed to understand that, that orientation. And so I started slapping him less, which did not change his intensity. And so I finally, at the end, I just barely touched him. And I still got slapped for that. And at the end, my little hand was just there, and I just went. <laughs> just, just that little harmless. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, you're not the boss of me. It may as well have been the middle finger. Because that's what it is. Selfishness. I am going to be the king. You're not telling, you're not the boss of me. You're not going to tell me what to do. I will be the king. Well, you think, well, you know, come on, come on. The context is not make it that serious. You know, take it. Now, listen, this is the reality. If you don't stop it there, it never ends. That thing just grows. 
Where do Hitlers come from? Where does Stalin come from? Where, do, where does lawlessness come from? You look, you look out there and you, you see these people who are, are just completely given. And I mean, they're astounded when they get a ticket, when they get pulled over, when they get arrested for killing people. It's like, no, I'm a good person. It was just, it wasn't really me. It was, these are the complex circumstances under which that happened. I don't really deserve the full punishment. Because underneath, it's just the attitude. And, and that thing has no end. It actually has no end. The only thing it, it stops it is opportunity. Opportunity is the only thing that stops the expression of that. And so I'm going to look at a couple of scriptures in a second. But, but there's a scripture in second, the second psalm. And it says that why do the nations rage? And, and he's talking about why do, why do the nations shake their fists of God and conspire against God because they've got this thing that they were born with that they know what's right, that they have a right to do what they want, and that in, when that thing is not restrained, it eventually gets to the point where it shakes its hand at the very God himself and says, no, I will be king. And what his response is, is this. He said, I have set my king on my holy hill. In other words, he's summing up all of the contention of creation, of mankind and the nations throughout history, and it simply boils down to this. Everyone is seeking to be the king. Every man wants to be king. And God is saying, that's, that's the essence of the fallen nature. It just doesn't get any better than that. It might be polite, it might be politically savvy, it might know how to brown nose, it might know how to, you know, connive and hide and conceal, but it always boils down, this is what God knows, it always boils down to a fallen, evil nature that cannot be redeemed, it must die. It must die. And so the the solution is this, you must be born again. You must be born again. This is what God is offering us. Not reforming our old nature, not improving it, not, not get, changing the equation so that we're doing more good than we are bad. He said, no, no, I want to write that thing off. I want to start all over. I want to give you a new heart and a new nature. I can take something that is pure and holy that comes from above and I'm going to put it inside of you and we'll start all over. You must be born again. You must be born again. There is no other solution. You just can't bring enough good-looking stuff out of that evil nature for me to like it. Right? It's kind of like that thing, you know, you, you find the, maybe you found a deer along the side of the road, and, you know, it's been there. Think, well, there might be a part of this we could eat. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> yeah. So... Two, two kingdoms, two natures, two destinies. Now, I happen to reading, be reading this morning in the Proverbs, Proverbs 30, verse 15 to 17. And this is what it says. It says, the leech has two daughters, give, give. And there are three things that are never satisfied. Four, never say enough. The grave, the barren womb, the earth that is not satisfied with water, and the fire never says enough and he's given an illustration he's saying listen 
There's, there's something that I see that's alive within creation. And here are four expressions of it that and they can never be satisfied. And uh, uh, this is the orientation of heaven. Heaven knows that the darkness that has entered into creation, the fallenness that has come into mankind, that has really touched every man, woman, child that has ever been born, that, that orientation... It can never be satisfied. There's never enough indulgence you can give that thing that it will say enough. That's the point. So, again, it's underscoring the only plausible direction God can take. It's got to die. That nature's got to die. It must be replaced with another nature. This is why religious systems that, that don't actually cause that ignition of a new nature that were that that don't cause a person to be born again but instead focus on behavior management they only appeal to a certain kind of people the brown nosers people like me cannot get born again can never be saved and that's why i didn't that's actually why i didn't go to church because i thought i just i just can't do this i just can't be good enough I cannot suppress the things that are inside of me. If behavior management is what this is about, I'm done already. And those, that was the situation when Jesus came to the Jewish world. They had a system of behavior management, uh, behavior modification and sin management. That was, I mean, it was the best on earth. It was the best that could ever be had. And so what you had is you had a, a schism between two types of people in that culture. You had the ones who could live up to the demands of the law, and you had the others who, yeah, no. The sinners, the publicans, the tax collectors, these are the ones that sort of give it up on the idea. Now, I, I just, and you know, they would look over the fence with admiration at these guys. How do they do that? How do they suppress their real desire, you know? And it, it made it look like there was actual righteousness over there. They thought, man, I, I wish I could be like that. I wish I could be good. I just can't, so I'm gonna be evil. I've accepted my lot. So Jesus' revolutionary message was, you're all evil. Well, guess who that didn't sit well with? (laughs) Right? There was a certain class of people on the earth that the, I mean, the hostility, the rage, the murderous insanity that rose up in them when Jesus said that they were born of fornication. Who do you think you are? Okay, there it is. There it is. <laughs> and that was his purpose. He said those things to not, to not to write them off, but to say, listen, you're already written off. You just don't know it. I do. You're full of dead men's bones. There's no righteousness in you. Everything you do is selfishness. Look at the whole system you built around yourself. It's fallen because you don't have any other option. And, but they still believed. They still believed. No, no, no. We're good. Uh, and worse, they're like, are you, are you telling me that 45 years of me not doing what I want and I'm in the same boat as those guys who did what they wanted? I, what? Can't be true, can't be true, can't be true, can't be true, can't be true. I'm so invested in this system. Now, we might not have such a, such a linear deciphered, you know, precept upon precept, line upon line, system of righteousness that's so, you could tell every, everything you did right and everything you did wrong, which each thing you did right just felt like, 
a little better about yourself. We might not have it that well delineated, but we still have it. We still have it. The problem is the nature that has to die. Proverbs 27, 20 says, Hell and destruction are never full. So the eyes of man are never satisfied. Isaiah 5, 14 says, Therefore Sheol, hell has enlarged itself and opened its mouth beyond measure because their glory and their multitude and their pomp and he who is jubilant will descend descend into it. He said, listen, hell has enlarged its mouth because the eyes of men are never satisfied. There's something about the desire of that nature. There's just not enough glory that could satisfy you. Oh, we could talk a lot about this. Our need for glory. Our need for recognition. You might be sitting here and thinking, yeah, but I never get recognition. Thank the Lord. Because he knows, he knows how to suppress that need. There there is a black hole on the inside of every one of us. And the nature of a black hole is it just consumes and it consumes and it consumes. And there's never enough. Never enough. And I remember hearing this from a well-known Christian leader who had a lot more esteem, a lot more recognition, a lot more position, a lot more authority than me in the earth. I mean, he, he had a, I mean, I, I, th- I coveted the amount of recognition that guy got. And then one day he, sa- he tells this story. He said, you know, I started, I fell into self-pity the other day. And I started, when somebody else was being affirmed, I started coveting the amount they were affirmed. And I thought to myself, what is, what is wrong with me? How much is enough? Right. What's the point? He said, there's a nature in you always seeking expression for which the only solution is death. It has to die. So there's this dichotomy going on inside of us that where there's actually two natures. Because... Just because you were born again didn't mean the other one was erased. The other one is being erased little bit by little bit. And it's proportional to how much the new nature is increasing. This is God's solution. Take take a second. Let's just pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask God for uh, revelation. We ask for clarity. We ask today, God, that you would deal another death blow to the internal confidence, the internal belief system that, no, we can manage this fallen nature, that we can, we can, we can suppress it uh, enough that we could arrive at some invisible threshold. God, we declare tonight, today that we want that nature to die and to die completely. So I'm going to try and make this quick. But your, your journey as a Christian, and if you are je- definitely born again, basically you have uh, two kingdoms at work inside of you. And so Paul talks about the one kingdom when he discovered that, you know, the old nature didn't just disappear from him. He started realizing there's something that's at war inside of me. 
And I, I can't seem to get over it. And so he, he talks about that, that solution, that God has this solution, but he talks about the frustration of not being able to do the thing that he wanted to do, and instead doing the thing that he didn't want to do, and how that was just unconquerable. And he realized that there was a solution in Jesus, and that's what God is offering us, is a solution in Jesus. But what does the journey look like? What is, what is happening along the journey? I'm trying, this is really complex, and I'm trying to make it simple. But I'll turn to one scripture, and we'll, we'll, we'll end with this in a few minutes. 1 John 3, 4 to 7. This is what it says. It says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. This is pretty heavy. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil sinned from the beginning. For this purpose was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Last verse, whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, let me remind you, that was written by John, the apostle of love, the apostle of tolerance, the apostle of sweetness and gentleness. I mean, you just can't get a more clear-cut line. So the question is, Paul, uh, John, what are you saying? What, what, are you, what are you saying? That, that if I do something wrong, therefore, I'm not a Christian, I'm not born again, I don't have, what, what, what happened to this tra- being translated into your kingdom? That's not the way it works. Here's what, with the way the discipleship program of God works. If you could line up everything that you do in a day, everything that you think, everything that you feel, if you could lay it out, okay, lay it out on a table. Okay, we're going to go through this. You've got a spreadsheet going on here. You, basically, what he's saying is this. He says, these things come from one of two sources. Every thought you have, every, every feeling you have, every act that you do comes from one of two sources. Father, in Jesus' name, I, I just can feel the confusion around this. I feel the room whirling. Father, we ask God for an apostolic release of the gospel of the kingdom in Jesus' name. This is what, this is what the Bible is saying. It's not saying, listen, do this and do that. It is saying it on one level, but it's saying this. Recognize where things come from. What I'm giving you is an ability to acknowledge and receive and see where things are originating. Basically, the message of Jesus, well, there are things that come from below and there are things that come from above. And when you read these verses in Peter and John, he's basically saying things, this. He's saying, listen, there are things that come from above and there are things that come from beneath. The things that come from above are the ones you want. 
They're the ones that overcome the world. Those are the ones that are embody the light of God. But the things that from beneath, even if they look good, are from beneath and therefore worthy of nothing. There's no righteousness in them. There's no goodness in them. And they don't have any power to change the earth. Now, in another verse, I think it's Philippians, Paul writes and he says, we are the circumcision of God who put no confidence in the flesh. Somewhere inside of us, there's a place where acts are born, where behaviors are born, where deeds arise from. You may, you may not know as a young, as a child, you may not know where those arrive from. And that's why it's your parents' role to help you see which is which. I remember not understanding this because I was kind of innocently evil. You know what I mean by that? I mean, I just find myself in the wrong spot, doing the wrong thing and having no idea no, that, why, how I got there. I wasn't malicious. I went, even when I was trying to do good. And I tell that story. It's a great story, grade two. I was always getting in trouble. So I'm always, you know, I kind of hoping that one day I could please the adult world. So I went to the washroom one time because I couldn't sit still. I didn't really have to go. Usually didn't, but I'd go multiple times a day just because I had to stand up and run around. And I went to the washroom and I saw a pen on the lentil above the urinal. I thought, well, this is a priceless object to me because we only use pencils. I was in grade two. We weren't allowed to use pens. I thought, this very expensive item has been left here. Somebody surely is looking for this thing. I know. I'll bring it to the principal because him and I are friends. We walk around a lot at recess. He holds my hand. We like each other. Often we have, we counsel each other in his office. So I go and I take that to the office and I don't realize it's there because it's leaking. And as an oblivious child, I'm just, you know, next to no, I look down and my hands are blue with ink and I'm waiting for the principal to have time and the secretary should have known I didn't belong there, but I don't know why she didn't send me back to my class. Next thing you know, just as I'm seeing the blue ink all over my fingers, there comes my teacher. She was mad, mad as a hornet. So I'm, do- I'm doing good things here. <laughs> Fixing the world. Another time I remember I, I was told you know, you just you weren't allowed to just go out and to the woods. You had to be back at a certain time. I was at somebody's house after school when I was in kindergarten. And here, you know, I just got caught up in the fun. I didn't know what time it was. And next thing I'm out there and I'm running through the woods. Ah, and I see this man coming down there with the proverbial article of discipline. <laughs> it's my dad. And I'm just shocked that I did the wrong thing again. So these things would cascade upon me, and in my innocence, I was innocently evil, but I was still always doing the wrong thing. And what the Bible is saying, listen, listen, it doesn't matter what your intention in your, in your mind, there's something at work inside of you that cannot be mastered, and it will always bring you into conflict against the nature of God. It must die. But here's the thing, there's a group of people in our midst who somehow have the intelligence, the fortitude, the desire to do the right thing. 
And that ability to do the right thing gives you an idea about yourself that is incorrect. This is, this is the truth. Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. There are things inside of you that are born. Well, you know, I'm a Christian. Now I got to be good. So I start doing these things and I'm wondering, you know, I'm probably the best at this in this whole church. How come I'm not an elder? Why? I should be in ministry. Benny Hinn, who's that? I'm the best Christian I ever seen. We won't get into why you think that. Maybe you're not that type. Maybe you're back and forth. Sometimes you feel like a complete heel. Other times you feel like you're, yes, I am a child of God. But the issue is not how good or how bad you do. It's how much of what you're doing is born of him. How much of it has that kingdom quality that instantaneously begins to affect others for the sake of righteousness. Now, I wish I could explain this more. There's so many nuances to this. But basically, God wants to bring an end to our confidence. Our confidence in what we do that's right. When it comes to churches, it's not what you do wrong that is your worst enemy. It's what you do right that is your worst enemy. And what God is doing is he's trying to show you that there are things that are born from above and things that are born from below. A good half or more of the things that are born from below look the same as righteousness, but are not. Father, I pray, God, that you would bring a sword to our lives. You would bring a division between what comes from above and what comes from below. We don't know how to do this, God. We don't know how how to change the equation. We don't know how to shift our confidence. We don't know how to do that, but Lord, you are doing this work, and I want you to know that God is overseeing the administration of your salvation even now. That God is the one who frustrates your good works and does not bring return that you hoped it would bring. It's not the church. It's not other believers. It's not your boss. God is overseeing. He, he said, you are my workmanship. I'm the one that's bringing reward and lack of reward to your life. Because I know. I'm so glad I had a father who somehow had an eye for the rebellion, for the self-righteousness, for the insolence, for the pride. If he hadn't suppressed that in my early days, I don't know where I would have ended up. I'd probably be a convict in prison for murder had he not done that. There are people in your life that God is using to suppress certain forms of what you think maybe even be righteousness. But it's God at work. God at work. God at work. And so, let's stand up together. What's the conclusion of this? Like, what, what do we come to? What, what action should we take away from this morning's message? It's basically this, resignation. Resignation to him. Resignation that says, God, I dare not even trust 
my, my sense of evaluation around the things that have happened to me, my sense of justice, I can't trust it. It's totally skewed in my direction. I absolutely have no clue what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong unless you show me. That orientation will save you. That humility will bring you to a place of resignation to him that we desperately need. Father, in Jesus' name, I just want to emphasize this one last time. When Paul said, he wrote in Romans 3, there's none good, no, not one. 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 He's trying to bring an end to something. He's trying to break a confidence inside of us. He's trying to shatter something, to bring death to something that life might prevail on the other side of the balance sheet. Father, I pray that that conviction would go deeper and deeper and deeper. You know, the promise that God has given us is that I'm going to put a new nature inside of you. And that nature is so pure, it cannot hate, it cannot accuse, it cannot be offended, it does not seek its own way. It's filled with patience and gentleness and humility. But everything that's not that needs to die. So I pray today that God would bring a huge dividing line and show us exactly how much effort we make to suppressing what we're really thinking and show us that that's that's an admirable first step, but that is not righteousness. That is not, no, I'm promising you another nature that can love the unlovely that can lay your life down so that you could be being crucified and pray forgiveness for the ones that are crucifying you. That kind of nature is beyond mankind. But that's what is available. And that's the direction we're going. And when we walk in that, the world around us will change. It cannot not change. Because that's born of God. That's born of heaven. Cam came to me a little earlier in the service and he said that uh, Kathleen's hip got healed during worship. There you are. I was thinking about that. As she came into the presence of the Lord today, she came in with a hip that was not functioning properly. She can manage that hip all she wants. She can stretch it. She can exercise it. She can go to the doctor. She can do all the things that she can do. But in a blink of an eye, in the presence of the Lord, he can change it. He can heal it. It's what we call transformation. And that's what we're asking him for, is that he would transform our minds and our way of thinking, that he would shift that evil thinking because only he can do it. So, Father, we yield to you and we submit to you. And we ask that you would transform our minds, our hearts. That we would see through your eyes, that we would hear through your eyes.
that we would never take the glory, that we would always give it to him. We take that pride that wants to grow in us and we just place it before the altar. In Jesus' name. Bless you.